preach the gospel to Gentiles. God is not showing partiality to the Jews and against anyone else. He wants me to preach the gospel to Gentiles also. Okay? Now this is huge. Huge. We can't understand it. This deep divide that was between Jews and Gentiles, for Peter to do this is huge. As for the word that he sent to Israel, notice to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In other words, he was anointed. What is the Old Testament Hebrew word for anointed? Messiah. Messiah. Christ means anointed one. When was he anointed? At his baptism. That's why he references baptism. He was anointed as God's servant. He was anointed. In other words, and it says here that he went about um, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In other words, he was showing people the kingdom of God. Jesus used to say, the kingdom of God has come near you. That was him. He said, I'm near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. And you see how the reign of the kingdom of God is going to be. There's not going to be any sickness. Not going to be any death. It's going to be the forgiveness of sins. I'm showing you the kingdom of God when I heal the sick, when I cast out a demon, when I raise the dead. That's the way the kingdom's going to be, and I'm here to bring it. I'm here to bring it. So he was anointed. All right. And we are witnesses that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Notice he says tree because uh, we have a very good uh, proper preface that we read before communion during Lent. It says that we were overcome by a tree in the garden, but by a tree, Christ overcame, okay? So it's tying all that together. He says, a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. You see in these verses and in the other sermons in the book of Acts, the rudimentary beginnings of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, there is no history of the Apostles' Creed. It literally developed in the churches and came to be accepted. Now, the old story about the Apostles' Creed was the apostles got together and each of them contributed a phrase. And when they put it together, they had the Apostles' Creed. No, no, no. It developed over time. And it began with the sermons in Acts. If we look at this sermon from Acts, we have the fact that he's dead, raised, going to be the judge, going to give forgiveness of sins. Those four phrases are in the Apostles' Creed. With time in the early churches, <coughs> this developed, was fleshed out. The Apostles' Creed is probably the oldest, but it wasn't in its final form for some time. What's the oldest creed? Anybody know? The Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed was written in 325 at the Council of Nicaea to combat heresies concerning Jesus Christ, specifically Arianism that taught that Jesus Christ was a created being and not eternal. But the Apostles' Creed came along, and as I say, it developed. The remarkable thing about it is there were churches in North Africa, and there were churches in Asia, and there were churches in the Middle East. And when it finally all came together, they were confessing the same creed. God did it. Okay? There's no other way to explain it. It developed, and God's hand was in this. So we continually confess the Apostles' Creed, but the basic beginnings of the creed are in the sermons in the book of Acts. The confession of faith by the disciples. All right, let's look at this second paragraph because it's very interesting. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They'd never seen that. 
for they were hearing and speaking in tongues and extolling God. All right. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. He came in the city of Jerusalem to all the pilgrims who were there, and they were from all nations. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and they could speak in tongues, and, and the Holy Spirit came. Most commentators say this passage is the Pentecost for the Gentiles. First one was for the Jews. This is the Pentecost for the Gentiles. And showed Peter unequivocally that God shows no partiality. The Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles, Gentile believers. Now, notice it says here, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. We believe that God is a God of means. Now, he can do the miraculous, but he's made the created order so that he works through means. So when you get sick, he works through the means of doctors and medicine for you to get well. When you're growing up as a child, he works through the means of parents so you learn and grow. He keeps peace in the world through the means. He doesn't do it directly through the means of government. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, comes upon us through the means of grace, word, and sacraments. So it's very important when it says here, the Holy Spirit, you don't just walk down the street and the Holy Spirit falls on you. Okay? It comes through the preaching of the word comes through the preaching of the word. And that's exactly what it says here, by the word. So by the word, the Holy Spirit came to them. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And many commentators say this is Gentile Pentecost. First Pentecost was Jews, chapter 2 of Acts. By chapter 10, Pentecost for Gentiles. To show Peter and his, those that were with him unequivocally, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, is for Gentiles. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of, the whole, of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Notice the implication here. He commanded they be baptized. We don't think Peter baptized them. Um, there are enough examples in the New Testament to tell us if you'd have been baptized by the one of the 12, 
that led to factions and to say, my baptism's better than yours. I was baptized by one of the twelve. Okay. I'm better. I'm better. Some people believe that. Even to this day. That's why they always want the, well, I want the senior pastor to do my baptism. I don't want no associate doing that. I want the real thing. Okay. And it doesn't matter at all. Okay. Doesn't matter at all. So um, they were baptized and he remained with them. All right. So from this point on, we have the building of the message to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, remember? By Acts chapter 15, we have the apostolic council of the disciples, and they made the official decision by, uh, based upon a lot of the testimony of the Apostle Paul and his ministry, Jew, uh, Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be Christians. A Gentile man does not have to be circumcised to become a Christian. Now, that battle continued to rage in the early church. As I said, we find it other places. But the Apostolic Council... Acts 15 made that decision. All right, so this, these verses from Acts chapter 10 are very important. Very important. So often we read over the book of Acts more like a history book. But there, is, there are deep things going on in the growth of the church in the book of Acts if we look carefully. All right, any questions about that one? None? All right, we're moving on. 1 John 5, 1 to 8. This passage, the first paragraph, is a summary, literally, of the Christian life centered around three words, faith, love, and obedience. Faith, love, and obedience, and we will see them tied together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So it begins with that statement. Now, uh, that's a passive. That means we didn't do it. Okay? Has been born of God. God did it. He's the one that brought us to faith in Christ. It has happened. God did it. We did not do that on our own, okay? And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
fellow Christians, the others that have been born of him. Okay? In other words, we can only love the fellow Christians created by God if we ourselves love God. Because let's face it, folks, we're a pretty unlovable bunch. You really cut to the chase, okay? So when God works in us and we are reborn, then only because of God's work are we able to love him and love each other. Because if we didn't have what God had worked, that wouldn't be on the radar. That wouldn't be on the radar. He's working that in us. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. In other words, it's a natural order. There's a natural order of things. First, God works in you faith. Because of that faith, you love God. And because of your love of God, you seek to keep the commandments, which is loving others. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So, that's the summary of the Christian life. That's the summary of the Christian life, right there. It's very simple. But it begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. If we are apart from God, then I can't stand up here and say, love each other. Okay? You don't have the power to do that. God is the one that works that in us. And his commandments are not burdensome. Burdensome. Well, I want to read you a couple of passages here. Because Jesus is saying something very specific here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is where Jesus lets him have it. Let's read there. I'll read to you from verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. He was attacking the scribes and the Pharisees. John had heard Jesus say these words. 
heavy burdens. So now John says they're not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? The Pharisees made it very clear that by keeping the law, you earn the favor of God. If you did not keep the law, you did not earn the favor of God. And so the motivation for trying to do this was sheer fear. I better do this or else. Coercion, force, browbeating. And the laws were extensive. By the time the Pharisees got done with the Ten Commandments, there were 600 laws. Even specifying how far they could walk on a, on a Sabbath day. what they could do and not do, 600 laws, okay? They were burdensome. Do this or else. God doesn't love you if you don't keep these. The Pharisees actually believed if they could get everyone in Israel to keep the Sabbath law one Sabbath day, Jesus would come again. God would come again. It would force God to come again. And that's why they were so hard on people that broke the Sabbath laws. You're preventing God from coming. So they were burdensome. Terribly burdensome. Now John says they're not burdensome. So then we come to what Jesus says. And Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because... We don't have to do it. We get to do it. We get to do it. Because he loves us and we love him. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In the face of our world, our faith overcomes. It's hard to believe, isn't it? With what we see and what we hear all the time. How am I going to overcome the world just by believing in Jesus? But that's exactly what it says. That is what is going to be the surprise on the last day. It's going to be a surprise because all these people in the world have their standards, 
what they believe is powerful, what they believe is mighty. And all of a sudden, God's going to show up and say, the people that believed in my son, when? They're the conquerors. Not all these other people. They're the conquerors. And it's going to be a big surprise. Okay? A big surprise. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. All right. There's been lots of interpretations about what the water and the blood is. Some say, or some thought, including Luther, that the water was a reference to baptism and the blood to the Lord's Supper. But notice how it says Jesus Christ came by water and blood. Okay? He comes through the sacraments to us, but... That's probably not the best way to look at it. We could also look at the whole matter that when Jesus was on the cross, he was pierced by a spear and water and blood came forth. But that water and blood came from him, not to us. The best way to look at water and blood are that the water is his baptism and the blood is his death because that's him coming to us with salvation. So, at his baptism, he was anointed as the Christ. And at his death, he earned for us salvation. Now, add to that, Water, blood, and Holy Spirit. Those are the things that testify to us that he's the Savior. His baptism when his father declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And his death on the cross of Calvary. And the Holy Spirit bearing witness to that. So we hold... We usually say that it's a reference to Jesus. Baptism, cross, death, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's a summary of the Christian life that we're going to overcome the world by our faith. That's what this lesson is teaching. All right, any questions about that one? All right, let's go to the gospel. This gospel lesson, these verses follow directly after what Pastor Thomas is preaching on this morning. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Okay? They follow. Keep that in mind as we look at these verses. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Sound like the same writer as the epistle? Both John, okay? It's both John. Keep the commandments, love. All right, now there are several things we have to assume here. All right, when we put the theology and John together, there's three statements that we make. Number one, the Father loved Jesus. Number two, Jesus loved the Father. And number three, Jesus kept the Father's commands because he loved him. All right? That's kind of the premise of what's being said here. That's kind of the premise. So now Jesus is taking that and is applying it to his disciples. Jesus loved us. We love Jesus. We keep Jesus' commands because we love him. In other words, the relationship between the Father and the Son that led and was the motivation for all things is applied to us as Jesus' disciples, and that applies to us. Love, his love for us, our love for him, is the motivation of us keeping his commandments. All right? So it assumes the Father and the relationship between Jesus and his Father is like the relationship between us and Jesus. Now, what about the joy? Jesus' joy was complete in lovingly keeping the commandments of the Father, even though it meant he went to the cross. That was his joy in lovingly keeping the commandments of God. Um, remember the passage, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. All right, now he's going to apply to, to us. He wants that same joy in us when we lovingly keep his commandments. 
He wants us to have the same kind of joy that he had when he kept his father's commands. And we can have that joy when we lovingly keep his commands. So he's, again, he's calling on his relationship with the father to be the basis of our relationship with Jesus. That's where the obedience comes from, and that's where the joy comes from. Still with me? That makes sense? Too many people just read this and said, well, see there, we got to keep the commandments to be saved. No, no, no. This is the sanctified Christian life that follows faith in Christ. All right. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. These words were said before Jesus died for them. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. All right. He's not calling them servants. When a servant is told to do something by the master... His first question is not, why? Okay? It's none of his business. The master told him to do it. Kind of like a vicar. <laughs> Just do it, vicar. But the fact is that um, the master knows better. The servant does not question his authority. But Jesus is, is promoting a radical thing here, that we're his friends. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We don't have to ask why. We know that others may become, come to faith in Jesus Christ. He has shared with us the whys. He hasn't explained everything to us about how he created the world, but the mission of the church, the mission of what he's calling us to do, he has explained why. So that we're not like servants, we're friends. And he gave up his life for his friends. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's back to what Pastor Thomas talked about in the sermon this morning. The initiative always belongs to God. Always belongs to God. Never with us. Never with us. There's never a case... It's always God. 
He chose us. We can all sit here this morning and literally thank God that he called us by the gospel, work faith in our hearts, continues to work that faith and call us here, continue to share his word and sacrament with us so that we grow in our faith, so that we get stronger. It's all, it's all his initiative. If it ever depended on us, it would stop. The grace would just stop if it depended on us. Because how many things do you do every day that make God mad? Okay? He could easily say, I'm done. Off the list. But he doesn't. It's always his initiative. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's loving and keeping his commandments. That your fruit should abide. In other words, these are the things that are going to last forever. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. When you are a friend of God, when you are reconciled to God, when you are a child of God and an heir of eternal life, all your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake, then you can come to the Father about anything at any time. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Not a Cadillac. That's not the implication. The implication is that you're going to ask for faith and the strength to love keep the commandments. Now, there are other passages that tell us that God answers prayer according to his will for us. And that's not his will. His will is, his highest will is that we are with him in eternity, forever. That's his will. Anything that he or that would get in the way of that, he's not going to give us. Okay? That's why none of you have won the lottery. He doesn't want that standing in the way. Okay? He doesn't want that standing in the way. He doesn't want anything to come between you and him. So he's going to answer all your prayers according to that. Can you pray for a Cadillac? Yes, you can. You might get one. Okay? You might get one. You can pray for anything you want to. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you my story. I always tell the confirmands in the confirmation class. I was a young uh, seminary student preparing for the ministry, and I have been dating Joanne for four years. 
it was time to put up or shut up. But I didn't have any money for an engagement ring. So I thought I'd be this great man of faith. So at Christmas time, I knew this jeweler, and I went down and ordered an engagement ring, and I said, I'll be back spring break to pick it up and pay you. Well, I went back to school and prayed that God would provide the money. Nothing. Got closer and closer to spring break. Finally, I came home for spring break. By now, I'm begging. Last day, the jewelry store is open, begging. Night before, my dad comes in and says, oh, by the way, I want to tell you, while you were, uh, while you were away at school, I filed your income tax, and you got a refund. Here's the check. Was the exact amount of the ring. Now, the one thing you got to remember about prayer, God always waits till the last minute to see if you trust him, okay? But he does that for another reason. Many of the things we pray for and are worried about never happen. So we pray and pray and pray, and it never happens. So God didn't waste his time answering that one. He knew it was not going to happen. But we can pray about anything, except we can pray about any earthly matter as long as we say, Thy will be done. But when we pray for things that he directly promises in Scripture, such as faith, forgiveness, God grant me patience, these are all promised in the Scripture. He wants us to have them. And so for these spiritual gifts... We do not need to pray, thy will be done. Okay? But we can indeed pray about anything. And the Father is going to hear our answer our prayers based on what is best for our eternal good. Not our good tomorrow, our eternal good. He has the big, big picture. We don't. Okay? So we let God be God. Okay? But Jesus' promise is sure. You can pray about anything. But he's going to answer as is best for us. And by the way, we can't browbeat him and we can't bludgeon him to death. You can't pray God to death. God's going to say no. He's going to say no. Okay? So we pray in faith. Best prayer is still, God, help. Amen. He knows exactly what to do. All right. Questions? Comments? Yes.
just says we need to our dad eventually just he calls he wants everyone to pray. We pray and pray and pray. The family members are praying and there's no And that is not God's fault. It is because of the stubborn, sinful resistance in our own hearts. He doesn't force anybody to believe. He calls you to believe. You can reject his call. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to believe. And that's, that's uh, you know, that's what the scriptures say. He wants to call everyone to faith in Christ. But the sinful hearts of mankind reject his offered grace. Come, believe in my son. I'll forgive you all your sins and give you eternal life. No. And. Why is the world still going on? God should have brought this to a close a long time ago. He's still going on because he's still wanting people to come to faith. He is patient, not forever, but his patience is why the world is still here so that more can hear the gospel and believe. But there are those who simply reject. If we are saved, it is God's doing. If we reject, it is our own fault. Okay. We can't go beyond that. That's what the scripture says. To go beyond that is to try to uh, figure out God. He hasn't revealed that to us in his word. And so we simply have to, to live with that tension, if you will. And it's painful at times. You know, how can someone not believe this? We do. When they're offered all these promises and all these things, so often it begins with the simple fact that they don't believe they're sinful or need any help. That's where it begins. That's where the problem begins. Sinful hearts say, I'm not sinful and I can do it myself. So when they're offered the gospel and they have to do nothing, they say, can't be. Can't be. Yeah. All right, other things? Yes, Bob. Could you just uh, perhaps expand on the passage, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yes, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay. Jesus knocks. There, there's no doubt about that. But what's being talked about in this passage is more sanctification than justification. He is knocking on your door to follow him, 
once you believe. Okay? He will continue to come into us. He will continue to empower us unless we shut the door. But he's always there. And he's always calling. It's misunderstood a lot. Uh, so it's the passage, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's leading the sanctified life. That's the Christian struggle of knowing what's right, not being able to do it. But it's not faith in Christ that saves you. It's what follows. It's what follows. All right, anything else? All right. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.